And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on August 16th, 2022. Theo Hooker is a systems thinker and nature-based solutions champion based in Washington, D.C., He is passionate about cultivating businesses that are both good for people and the planet, while laying a roadmap for other businesses to follow. He believes that in order to create a just and sustainable future, we have to imagine a new way of interacting in the world. In 2020, he co-founded Cambium Carbon, a climate tech company that builds local supply chains across the country. Starting with urban wood, Cambium connects naturally fallen trees to primary and secondary processors, for example, saw mills and wood shops, and then on to end buyers, furniture manufacturers, architects, designers, and the like. In his spare time, Theo trains for ultra marathons, practices handstands, and enjoys good books. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Theo. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. We wanted to find out about how you wound up in the work that you're doing. Where did you grow up and how did that background influence where you are today? I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Spent all my adolescent teenage years there. Um, growing up in a place that was always climate aware, I guess you could say that, you know, from a young age, we knew about the drought and being water aware and how to conserve water here and there. Growing up as well, my parents didn't like, you know, using excess heating or cooling. So in the, in the wintertime, we brought out blankets and drank tea. In the summer, we opened the windows uh, and turned on fans, trying to reduce or be aware at least or conscious of the energy that we were using. So from a young age, I was always aware of sustainability and was always questioning, you know, why we did certain things a certain way that maybe was not sustainable or didn't, you know, benefit the planet. And I think that those seeds of questioning, curiosity uh, grew and led into academic pursuits, professional pursuits, and sort of where I ended up today. So where did you go to school? Yeah, I went to school at Colorado College, a mm-hmm. small uh, liberal arts school in Colorado Springs. Right. And and how did your tree and your lumber and your all of that come together with cambium carbon? Absolutely. At Colorado College, I was focused and, and a lot of my 
questions surrounded how do we build businesses that are both good for people, good for the planet, but also you know financially sustainable. I think in a lot of ways, some people think of sustainability and sustainability in the environment and sustainability of a business uh, over time as kind of mutually exclusive. And I really wanted to dig into that. And the first root of that was in sustainable food systems. So how to build uh, food systems that are regenerative for the land, for people who eat that food, the people who work uh, in those operations, but also as a business as well. And the roots of Cambium really started uh, with my co-founder, Ben Christensen, who we grew up together. We went to middle school and high school together in Albuquerque. He was doing some work at the World Resources Institute with their carbon removal team looking at across the U.S., what are the best nature-based solutions we have to address climate change and bring more carbon out of the uh, out of the atmosphere? And he really zeroed in on urban forestry in particular, and specifically three different trends that were going on or that he noticed. One is that across the country, urban tree numbers are declining. So in most major cities, urban tree percentages or coverage is declining. On top of that, We have this massive amount of waste from urban trees coming out of those urban areas. So the latest estimate was 36 million trees equaling 46 million tons of material comes out of cities. And then on top of that, even more is that our urban areas are expanding. So by 2050, by 2100, if we don't have a problem or solution to this problem, it's just going to look and feel a lot worse. And it's going to hurt a lot of communities that are usually lower income, lower access, underrepresented, uh, or under, under-resourced. So those are all the, the pieces that came together. And Yeah, I was going to say that, you know, you have to have some type of vision for this. And to be as young as you were having this vision is quite astounding. And perhaps maybe, maybe not, because you're, the generation that you are is very acutely aware of our circumstances from a global perspective. And mm. I I like the fact that, you know, there's these three ideas and they hit the nail on the head. You know, there are people talking about global warming or changing climate back in the 60s, but not a lot of people jumped on the bandwagon right away. And I think that that mm-hmm. bandwagon has to tip to a certain point. And maybe the generation that you're from is, has been absorbing all that information before you even came in to this world. I mean, that's what I'm thinking. I'm kind of visualizing that. Sure. You have to have all that knowledge before you even get here. And that's what it sounds like to me. You know, I I teach at a university, so I I kind of look at people and wonder how they think about things. And your thoughts are very big. They're enormous when you think about... Yeah, and I think... I don't know, I feel very, you know, similarly, lots of peers, you know, in, in my generation and, and even, you know, most of our, most of our staff are, you know, our, our teammates at Cambium are, are older than myself, older than, than Ben. And I think it is a, a growing collective awareness around some of the real gaps that our system has left for the planet, for people across the board. And there is a bit of, you know, imagination that's involved to exactly what you're saying, kind of have those thoughts, you know, what, what would a just and sustainable system look like? You know, how, how could that come together um, as almost a creative exercise that then leads into reality? And to allow yourself the latitude to be able to change that vision if needed. 
Absolutely. You know, the, what we started out with Cambium, we, we had some ideas, we had some assumptions, maybe the, the general trajectory is, is staying, you know, true to that and in ways, but certainly the step-by-step path has, has changed, you know, being, being flexible to adapt is, is key. Exactly. You know, just to kind of continue this thread, because I feel like it's foundational and giving our listeners an opportunity to kind of hear some things for the first time. So along the lines of, you know, climate science 101, can you talk to us about the need, the urgent need for seeing that urban trees are properly handled and processed? In other words, what do we gain by keeping trees out of the landfill and how does the planet benefit? Absolutely. I think one of the the key pieces to, to highlight first is taking apart how we address climate change. And I think in a lot of ways, we have focused and become a little bit narrow-minded around carbon, right? We learned about climate change and then we started focusing on carbon. Okay, we got to get carbon out of the atmosphere. Okay, great. What are the cheapest and most efficient ways we can do that? And I think with different areas around carbon offsets and things like that and some scrutiny around, is that actually beneficial? I think there are some challenges with just focusing on the carbon. And one of the coolest parts, at least to me, about urban trees is that the carbon sequestered in an urban tree, like there's, it certainly happens, but not on the scale of a, you know, a massive planting project, you know, in, in a rural area. But what isn't necessarily shown is the impact to air quality in cities, the advantages of mental health, which we've all seen access to green spaces has been key over the you know, last several years of the pandemic. And all these different, you know, what you could call co-benefits or maybe not top of the list benefits of having urban trees are so prominent. And primarily from an environmental perspective, we are keeping these trees out of a landfill. And so there's a little bit of carbon offgassing that happens, you know, just like food waste or, or any type of organic material that would just sit and release carbon into the atmosphere. But the big piece that we see is we, we spend millions of dollars. Cities spend millions of dollars each year caring for these trees then they have to spend millions of dollars removing them and disposing of them and that is it's you know lost value and added carbon emissions so how we were thinking of it is you know if we can flip that on its head and turn these trees into a valuable resource rather than a you know sunk cost so to speak and use them to create local jobs through the entire life cycle from planting to salvaging to repurposing, uh, you name it. Then at Cambium, 15% of our profits go directly back into tree planting uh, in those areas. And so you're creating this, this circular system that turns a wasted product into a valuable piece of you know, furniture, flooring, whatever, and then directly impacting new planting. And I mean, we talk about this all the time. It's not a new concept. We are not innovative or changing, you know, something in a crazy way, it's using resources that we've had in our backyard is the tale of human history. So it's almost a reconnecting and going backwards in a way. So am I right by saying that Cambium Carbon might be working as in a consulting role or in a brokering role? Is that accurate? Yeah, so we have a few different, we play a few different roles. We really started on the the city side of things. So in that kind of consulting role, working with cities to figure out how can they 
start to set up this circular wood economy or system in their city. And you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on our, on our work in Philadelphia as we go along, but that, that's one example of that. We also work with companies in a consulting basis who are removing lots of trees, right? If they're, you know, to have a new development or they're building a new office, uh, maybe a new headquarters, and they have to remove some trees, we can ensure and walk them through the process of, okay, here are the species you have, here are the best uses of those species, here are the local processors or sawmills that we can use to turn this material into products that you could use in your office, your new building. And then outside of that, we also work in that brokerage capacity, connecting buyers. So any, you know, furniture manufacturers, architects, designers, you name it, anyone who uses wood to this local sustainable source. Uh, And that's, that's one of the challenges we've seen is that people love this idea, but they don't know some people didn't know it was a thing, you know, urban wood, like, what are you talking about? So part of it is just spreading awareness and education around this material, but then connecting them to the right, you know, the right folks who can get the job done. Right. You know, what I think is is interesting while you were talking about manufacturing, you know, Philadelphia is known as the workshop of the world. And mm. a lot of things were invented, developed here. Sure. And they were all firsts. So I think of this as a natural process for us to go through as a city to be able to work with a company like yours to create something that maybe no one's seen before and maybe create maybe a new model altogether that doesn't exist yet. You know, I think of our waste stream in Fairmount Park there where mm-hmm. people take their their recyclables and what have you and thinking about that and maybe even creating a center of some type with the wood for people to actually see the processes of how things happen and how the processes work from start to finish. And um, we just had a gentleman on whose company does everything from seed to senescence, as he says, and beyond. Mm. And to be able to show a process is really an ideal circumstance for people to learn and to then come up with ideas that are boundless ideas from your idea. Absolutely. You know, I think over the past several years, you know, people have talked about like the local food movement and mm-hmm. how important it is to, you know, know your farmer or go and, you know, go, you meet your, go to your farmer's market. It's been interesting, you know, people, we, we don't think about wood in the same way, right? Like right. where does exactly. your wood come from? Where does your furniture come from? Um, and, you know, unless you have maybe a, an heirloom piece from your grandparents or something like that, there is a lot of, opaqueness around these supply chains. And especially now over the past two years, everyone's talking about supply chains, but it's been very cool to see, you know, a new awareness and a new interest in in all of these pieces as well. Right. I think where it's already working uh, and maybe the consumer can quickly get a picture of it. You mentioned local produce, farmers markets. So that's an easy jump, an easy analogy. Mm -hmm. But the other thought there is just the idea of translating that, like you say, to let's keep that wood local. <laughs> let's find a home for that log. You know, I'm winding my days down as a contracting arborist. Mm. And since the get-go with our Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, you know, I've, uh, it's arborist guilt. Sure. Trees getting cut down and hauled back to the yard and then basically once a month hiring another sub to come pick them up. 
and haul them who knows where. But in my heart of hearts, I know that they're not going to a mill. A lot of them are going out to a farmer's field, you know, 30, 40 miles away from the urban center. Mm-hmm. Well, just another analogy to the food space is, you know, we've seen a lot of wasted or, you know, imperfect food. Or like, you know, models come up where, wow, all this stuff's going to waste, but it's perfectly good. It just looks a little bit different. And we see a lot of the the similar things, you know, the wood industry or the lumber industry, they have a very clear definition of what material or what logs could, could be, can be put into their supply chain and what can't. And we largely deal with that pile of, you know, rejects, maybe a little bit wonky, maybe a little bit funky looking and turning that, spending a little bit more time, turning that into usable material. And so what may be termed a a defect in the lumber industry is character. You know, it tells a story. It uh, adds a little bit more more to a, a piece or a furniture or anything like that. You know, back in the 1700s, Philadelphia was the epicenter for carpentry and woodworking and and cabinetry. And we became known as the cherry capital because once the land was cleared, the first successional plant that comes in is a cherry. Mm. So the cherry wood, by the time the late 1700s came around, being cleared in the 1600s, you already have these cherries that are 50 years old, and we had perfect wood for making furniture. And we became an epicenter. And Massachusetts, again, they became an epicenter. New York became an epicenter. And Mm -hmm. so we see these in almost like little encapsulations. If you were looking at a timeline, what was occurring during these time periods? Mm -hmm. And I think we're kind of back to that where we can become another epicenter for furniture production or maybe even housing, you know, new housing materials that, people have never seen before. Those are the kind of things that I think about when a new opportunity like the one you're presenting comes about. And it just creates infinite possibilities. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So much of it comes back to Theo. You know, I'm thinking about your clients. Obviously, I don't know who they are, but reaching them, the the marketing end of it. And we've talked to um, other businesses, not necessarily in any way using your business model, but other companies that are trying to market urban wood. Sure. And therein lies the, the, the challenge, right? Um, once this catches on, I would think that it could be a sea change and then a very exciting development for municipalities. But what are your thoughts about marketing what you do? How do you reach Everyone from developers to arborists to contractors to equipment suppliers. There's, there's a lot of, it's a big universe out there for for that. Absolutely. And I think it, you know, where where we approach it from is really leading with the the impact side of things, as you're saying, you know, and I'm sure you've you've seen this on the ground level of having to remove a tree or do something and someone is just heartbroken, right? That they have to remove the tree. Maybe it was it was planted when their child was born or, you know, when they moved into their first house or something like that. Every tree tells a story. And that's what we really tried to push with. And part of that story is the impact that we have we've been talking about. And then making sure, you know, connecting that to an end product, to a process. And especially, you know, we're trying to to work with big companies who have large volume needs and then tracing it back to, okay, what kind of infrastructure do we need in place? What sort of regional rising tide do we need in these strategic areas to make sure that if we get 
you know, who knows if we need, if we could get a big company to agree to X amount of urban wood in their supply chain, couldn't we actually do that? And so part of that is, is finding the right people to talk to in these organizations, which can certainly be a, a journey in and of itself, but finding the right yeah. people and then setting the right expectations. Because if you go in talking about lumber and then you send someone some urban wood, they're going to be a little shocked because it's going to look different. And each piece is going to look a little different. We've gotten pretty used to everything looking very, very similar, especially in the wood wood world, whether it's you know veneer or a plastic sort of imitation or something like that. You know, we've yeah. You know, I think sometimes we have to remind people that wood is a natural material, and nature is very hard to replicate over and over and over again exactly as you as you want to see it. So, right. part of it is getting the right people. And another big part of it is is setting the right expectations. You were talking about coming up with this infrastructure. I'm old enough to know that Philadelphia used to have train lines on the road, roadways. So mm-hmm. certain times of the day, you'd be driving down the road and there would be a train driving next to you. <laughs> um, and that train was delivering the barley, knew exactly what he mm-hmm. had to do if he saw a car or what have you. And the, of course, drivers learned how to drive next to these trains. But it was delivering the product right to the source and that infrastructure worked very well in the city of Philadelphia and a lot of other cities along the East Coast. And having a vision, I mean, you really have to work mm-hmm. with other people who do have vision because some people can be very stuck in their ways and they don't want to change. They just want to keep going on the way they've been going on. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our problems that we have with the environment is just that, that people don't want to let go of sure. what we've been doing for the last hundred years. and. I think people like yourself are change makers and that message that you bring Mm. needs to be heard through the right channels and with the right people in order for you to make that impact. So speaking of channels, I'm wondering if, if you've had any kind of receptive response from the tree care industry, the International Society of Arboriculture or Society of Municipal Arborists or Tree Care Industry Association? Yeah, we have, from that top level, we have not, you know, actually pursued that as much. But we have partnerships and work with local sawmills who obviously, you know, they have some connection to their local arborists. And across the mm-hmm. board, you know, we're right. trying to to build out more more resources on the true sort, you know, the at the top of the the funnel, you know, the folks who are dealing with these downed downed trees on a daily basis. And I think we actually, actually, my co-founder Marissa is speaking on a panel with the Society of American Foresters next week in Baltimore. And to your point, it's like making it accessible, right? You were saying when you drop, you have to cut right. logs off and then you take them to your yard and then someone comes and picks them up. Well, instead of driving to a, a landfill or a mulch yard, maybe, can you bring those to the sawmill, right? Or um, you know, I think what what we're really excited about in Philadelphia is the, the co-location of those things, right? So that the, at the Fairmount Parks Recycling Center, trees from the city are going to be dumped there anyway. The ones that meet the qualifications or standards to be turned into lumber will go boom right there to the mill. The ones that aren't can be, you know, of course, there's going to be mulch. We're looking at other avenues like biochar. There's other other uses for this material all in one place. I mean, that's that's sort of the, uh, 
you know, an amazing vision where it can all happen right there, every piece being put to its best use. Right. Is biochar part of the conversation at the recycling center? That would be extraordinary. So there, we, we definitely want to walk before we run yes. in a lot of ways. But I think if the stars align, it's certainly on people's mind. Exactly. I mean, I think your, your, your interest is shared by many. Um, so if the stars align, yeah. absolutely. I think there is a lot that we need to figure out there and focusing on the milling, at least uh, for now. Sure. Right, right. And, and again, you're talking about a model in one spot. And, you know, when I was saying earlier about having a building or a, someplace where people can go and actually see the process, yep. it's like, you know, going to see the, going to see the pretzels being made, making, going to see the, the donuts where their donuts are made. Sure. That kind of feeling is very empowering to people who have never seen, it's like when you take a child to a farm and they've never seen a pig or a cow. Mm -hmm because I used to teach food crops at the university and I, you know, we go to these different places and somebody said, I didn't know that they had chickens here. Like, you know, I've never seen a chicken, sure. you know, running around, like, you know, that kind of thing, that optimistic viewpoint when someone comes in to see something that they've never seen before. And I think that if you have something like that in Fairmount Park happening, that's going to be an education tool uh, beyond what anybody can do by talking. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if we're, we're doing some creative, you know, brainstorming or, uh, you know, visioning sort of thing, it's like, well, could there be a, a pizza, a pizza spot that has the wood burned from, you know, your local canopy. And it's sort right. of, then you can like, you can order your pizza, you walk around, you see the whole process, you know, but it's, uh, it's much more like that in itself is an amazing educational tool. I'm sure, you know, as a professor and in, in, at the university, you know, having a, a real life representation of something like that would be would be an amazing resource. Sure, and we know that we know that people learn best by seeing and doing. Yep. Um, and they might be your at the, the strongest advocates for your company and the processes. Like Hal was just talking about, how can you connect arborists with what you're doing? Is there a an actual process of connection? Like I was thinking of putting uh, tinker toys together. You know, there's a, there's a process, there's, there's little ends that go into uh, a structure. And if that can happen, things could happen much quicker. Mm -hmm. And um, people, can, people will understand things much better. Mm -hmm. The process is really the important thing, being able to see the process. Yeah. I'm thinking it through the eyes of a business person and... My sense is there might actually be the beginning of a whole industry separate from the tree care companies because the owner operators that I know <clears throat> tend to be stretched pretty thin. And whereas a company that is specifically taking and processing and marketing and selling lumber, dimensional lumber, live edge lumber, I think are probably going to do better as a standalone rather than the mom and pop tree care company trying to take that on. Does that ring true for you, Theo? A key part of that is, again, going back to the infrastructure, right? If you don't have the log truck or the crane or the, the actual machinery right. to remove a tree in the lengths necessary to maximize the yield from it, then exactly, it, it is hard to, to even imagine, you know, move in that direction. You know, that's a that would be a huge investment or a huge loan that someone would have to take out to build that up. But I do think that there is a 
understanding what what forms of collaboration you know if there's one well-equipped company in the area but they can't you know they can move a lot of logs but they can't remove all these logs you know how can you know could more things be dropped and left and then picked up later or something mm-hmm. like that so there's, oh, yes. there's so many opportunities yeah. there but i agree it is it is a hard uh you know just from an equipment perspective it is it is hard for the the smallest of, the, of those businesses to make way in that field right in the midwest when they had all the problems with the emerald ashbourne um the urban wood network had a had a um a video showing how they brought in the the small harvester that they used in the field in a regular timber process sure where that little piece of equipment could cut the logs to the exact length pop them on a truck mm. And they were doing it down the residential streets of uh, the Midwest. And somebody came up with that idea because there were so many dead trees. They had to come up with an idea. And that idea actually helped to remove a tree for a minimal price to be able to be taken to a sawmill. And it's that kind of ingenuity that comes up when there's a real need when there's a real need and you know it could be a business person but it could be a little kid with his elementary school that he sees something and he goes oh you know maybe we could do this and I, you know i used to oversee some of the science fair projects some of the kids had better ideas than people that are 50 years old <laughs> i don't doubt it absolutely and they would win prizes for their ideas you know those suitcase on wheels mm-hmm. was one of a, a child's our a regular tote that we take along with us when we travel yeah. that was a child's idea mm-hmm. so you know you're going to see all kinds of things coming out and you just have to you know be aware that those things can happen on a dime mm-hmm. If you have a place where people can actually go, a person like yourself can talk to a group of people. And it was an educator. We're always looking for something that's different and new and exciting for kids to get their twinkly eyes around. Mm-hmm. And between you and Hal, I think I think it's it's really a process that that is it's just boundless. I think that your thoughts and your ideas are just incredible and we need to take that to the next step, whatever that next step is. Absolutely, absolutely. So the city's recycling center, when you came to see it, what did you think of it? What was your first impression? The impetus or the the spark for our work in Philadelphia and the city's interest in this came from this, a similar project in Baltimore. So very similarly, right. Baltimore um, has a what's called Camp Small, very similar as the the Fairmount Park ORC. And the first thing in both cases that you're struck with is just the volume, right? You drive in and you are surrounded, you know, these waves, uh, you know, overhead 20 feet tall of logs stacked. Um, And I think to to your point, Eva, around the visibility, right? We don't see that. We we might see, uh, you know, an arborist truck here or there or hauling a log on the road but just seeing the volume i think is the first big you know just stops you in your tracks then i think you know at least in the in the situation in in the setup in baltimore and then seeing philadelphia is that this can't be a one-person job or even a two-person job you know there is so much material that it will it requires a real workforce to deal with this and the idea that it's just you know what you see there is probably only it's not all of it right it's just a percentage of that material 
And so really seeing like, and then all the pieces that have to come together to make that, you know, who's dropping the logs, what quality are they, where are they going, who's in charge of deciding their end use, you know, all these pieces that come together. But then on the other hand, you know, as you're mentioning as well, it's like a boundless opportunity, you know, that there's just so much potential and so much, you know, amazing things can can happen from from all that. And just having a space to drop the logs is a huge step in the right direction, House. I'm sure, you know, if, if there's no place that you can store those logs for then someone else to come and pick up later, you have to get rid of it as quickly as possible so you can go to the next job. So right. that, even that is a is a huge advantage. You know, we just we just had a tornado up here a year ago, first mm. of September, just not too far from my house. And it was the university where I used to teach. Oh wow. The campus, 197 acres. And I watched those trucks and those clearings of those trees. They came in and marked everything that's going to come down. And they had those 30 foot stacks of wood. And, you know, which one was going to the sawmill, which one was going someplace else. That was mind-blowing for everyone who lived in the area. It just made everybody aware that there's there's other things. And I actually helped them get connected with sawmills up at the university. Mm-hmm. I gave them a name, groupings of names of, of people that have sawmills in the area. And that to me was like, I can't imagine having that resource just thrown into a dump. Mm-hmm. Just doesn't, wouldn't make any sense to me. Sure, <laughs> It's like you know, throwing money down the toilet. Yeah. And again, having a resource and again, labor, when you have potential jobs for an area, that's a whole nother thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Changes the whole, whole, whole atmosphere and landscape of, a, of, a, of an area. Yeah. Just to show my age a little bit, when I was starting out in the tree business in the Midwest, and I know Philly had something similar, when we took a tree down, uh, or even when we were pruning, the logs would not go to the landfill. They would go to a large open burning dump. <laughs> and uh, to keep the fire going, they would stoke tires. <laughs> and you would just back your tree truck up and dump. In, and then a bulldozer would keep pushing all your biomass into a giant flaming mountain. So yeah. uh, we've We've made a little bit of progress. <laughs> it's a horrible image to think back on. And I mean, in some cases, like this is, you know, for just the way that you know, the incentives are exist around, you know, this industry is that there are still burn piles, you know, to this day, people have to get rid of material because there's not yeah. a, an easy or accessible way to, to, to get rid of it. And so I think that's, to your point, I think we're, we're, we're moving in the right direction, but it's so important to make these things accessible to the folk, you know, to the guy driving the truck, mm-hmm. you know, how, how, how can they yeah. make sure they have the time or they have the, the direction from, from their boss to be able to go do that? Well, it's so exciting that uh, Cambium Carbon has been given the green light by the city of Philadelphia to take that recycling center and assist with creating jobs, creating product. I hope it generates a little bit of revenue for the city, you know, and and we wish you all kinds of great luck and and success with it. And I hope Cambium Carbon gets to move right up the East Coast to the next big urban market, whether it be um, Jersey City or 
the Bronx or Boston. It seems like maybe that's how it's going to go. It'll just hopscotch its way up the East Coast because one thing we have no shortage of is wood. Absolutely. And when is this process really going to be take place or when is it going to really get underway, Theo, mm-hmm. with the city of Philadelphia? I mean, you've already made your negotiations and you've got the grant and the what what what's next? So we actually we will be having our first uh, official site visit, you know, under the the grant and the new, you know, kind of new project timeline next week. There are a lot mm-hmm. of things, you know, machinery has been ordered, infrastructure is, is on the way, um, but we are hoping to be cutting wood by summer of 2023. So a lot of things have to fall into place before then, but we're excited that it's as the most clear and and straightforward that it has ever been. And hopefully it just keeps moving in that direction. So as we wind it down, Theo, coming from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and am I right that you're based now in Washington, DC? Correct, yes. So. Between Albuquerque and D.C., do you have a favorite tree <laughs> um, yourself as a student? Well, or you can have one from there and one from here. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I guess a, f- a few different answers. One, you know, growing up, I, I grew up and there were basically two rows of townhomes with a grassy sort of orchard in the middle. was sort of the community. Actually, both my parents were architects and they helped design that space. And in this grassy field, there was a big willow tree. And ever since I can remember, that was like the best tree to climb. Um, mm. And so there's a nice. I have a, a affinity for for willow trees. And then kind of on the on the flip side of that, you know, growing up in New Mexico, especially in the summer, when you go on a hike or or be outside, really, you get you smell almost like a, a hot pine smell uh, from the pinon pines out mm-hmm. there. Um, mm-hmm. And so that is a very visceral. Uh, memory of mine, which which always reminds me of home. But out here on the East Coast, and especially in DC, I mean, the cherry blossoms are are hard to to compete with. Um, I had my first spring out here this year, and was was floored, both with some allergies, uh, but also the, the the beauty of it as well. So, got the full experience. Yes, welcome to the allergy capital of the world. Along, <laughs> good to be here. We go, we go west. We go west with our allergies. People leave here because they're so so taken with the allergies. Yeah, so, yeah. it's great that you picked those three trees. And uh, I don't think we've had anybody pick a willow or a pinion pine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> Lovely. Well, we really appreciate you being on our, our podcast and we wish you the very best, you and your company and all your affiliates. We couldn't be happier that there's this coming to Philadelphia. Absolutely. And I'll just I'd be, be remiss to mention, you know, so, so much of the work that we are doing is is made possible by the work of, you know, decades and decades of, of work in the urban wood space. You know, we've we've talked with folks and, you know, if we had entered this, you know, 10 years ago, I'm not sure we would have had the success and the traction that we that we are seeing and and hope to continue to see. So there's just been, you know, from the folks at the Herb Wood Network, you know, to you know, across the board, there's just so many people who have pushed this this forward and it's I'm excited for for what's in store. Yes, we are too. Yes, yes are we. <laughs> well, take care. Thanks, Theo. Thank you, Theo. Thank you so much, Eva Hal. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California.
Thank <laughs> you. 